On this episode of Behind the Headlines, we break down everything that happened in election week. Simon Schuster and Jordan Hermony join us to talk results in Michigan. Welcome back to the podcast. As I said, our guest today is Simon Schuster and Jordan Hermony. And as always, Vice President of Content at MLive, my co-host, John Heiner. How are you, my friend? Thank you, Eric Culcoran, for that wonderful introduction, as always. Always appreciate it. And uh, we're coming back on Behind the Headlines after a week off. And what a week it was. I almost felt like we needed a week to digest everything that happened. It wasn't Election Day in America now. It turns into Election Week. Uh, they just finished counting some votes out west. Um, luckily, Michigan had most of uh, the results the day after, but we needed all this time to digest it because we have an awful lot to talk about. And here to join me today, uh, a couple experts on these topics from uh, MLive's political writing team, uh, Simon Schuster. Good morning, Simon. Welcome back. Thanks so much for having me again, John. And reporter Jordan Hermony. Welcome and welcome back, Jordan. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. And I, seriously, since we only have uh, you know, 25, 30 minutes, there's so much to talk about. Uh, Michigan um, has been a swing state for a while. It's gotten a lot of attention. Um, and the, the feeling has always been in the last several election cycles that it's close calls. It's up in the air. But I got to say, I was surprised by some of the outcomes uh, here in Michigan, some historic things that, that haven't happened in a while. And so I wanted to start by saying, uh, challenge each of you and say, you guys are old pros, but what was the thing that surprised you most coming out of Election Day on November 8th? Go, Simon. I would say that uh, towards the end of the election season, there was sort of a feeling or sort of something that pollsters had gauged in surveys. The idea that the motivation among uh, voters to uh, turn out in order to defend the access to abortion. Uh, there was a feeling among pollsters and strategists that, you know, this was sort of waning in favor of more immediate issues like the economy and inflation. But that wasn't the case at all. This is still, I mean, I think that Election Day proved to us the sticking power and the importance of these reproductive rights issues, uh, you know, within the electorate. And I think that really to, uh, this election is defining um, really when these sort of central issues come up and then they become on the ballot as they were with proposal three, that's going to drive turnout and shape the electorate. And so uh, I would say that I was surprised just how wrong folks were saying that uh, abortion itself was becoming a lesser issue in favor of the economy, because clearly based upon everything that we've seen on election day, that is not what happened. Mm -hmm. Jordan, your thoughts? Yeah, not to steal what he said, but I mean, in, in conjunction with that, I also have to say uh, the Democratic Party taking the Michigan House, um, we had seen a ton of uh, momentum out of the Senate Democrats. Um, if you remember, there was Senator Mallory McMorrow, who went viral, uh, became like a national media darling after she was the recipient of some verbal attacks by another senator, Senator Lana Tice, uh, who accused her of being a groomer. That kind of like set the stage for Democrats um, in the Senate in terms of, you know, getting this this big backing. I mean, McMorrow immediately saw tons of, of fundraising uh, to support her. But in the House, you, you didn't really see that same level. Uh, I know uh, House Democrats were insanely, you know, they they very much did believe that they had the momentum, but I mean, they believe that they had the momentum in 2020 and, and we didn't see that occur. Um, but these new maps, uh, these new maps, I think are going to be something that we're going to have to keep talking about and looking into because now they've made Michigan far more competitive and far more purple than they've ever been. 
Um, and, and, you know, the Democrats flipping the House, the Democrats taking a trifecta, which we haven't seen since the early 80s. Uh, I think that above everything, when I woke up the, the next day, I was like, wow, this is uncharted territory uh, for all of us, the politics team, at least. We weren't even alive the last time that Democrats had the House, the Senate and the governorship. Yeah, you had a great tweet that said the last time this happened, um, MASH was on TV and Madonna made her debut. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember all that. But um, that's why, to me, I think the biggest surprise was waking up and finding out that the the House Senate and the top you know, governor's office um, are all Democrat. And it just I didn't of all the things that I wondered might happen. I did that never crossed my consciousness. So that truly was the biggest surprise. And then uh, the second surprise to me, because you just don't know until people go to the bowl, the polls. But Donald Trump, it was kind of like it was sort of like the Wizard of Ozmo where the curtain gets pulled back and you go, oh, he's not this you know master wizard. He's he's actually fallible. And some of the candidates that he backed, you know, and now there's finger pointing at Tudor Dixon, um, you know, uh, you know, he came and supported her and he's like she ran a terrible campaign and people are blaming Trump. But anyways, the the kind of the Trump aura seems to take a hit there, too. And I wonder what your guys thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, after each uh, election since 2018, there has sort of been this moment, this uh, reactionary force where um, conservatives and people within the Republican Party who perhaps had not liked the former president or then president uh, to begin with are sort of saying, OK, this is the moment. This is the moment where we can sort of kind of uh, remove that presence from our party and move on and sort of be able to take a more moderate pack attack uh, where we can uh, chart a bigger tent for the party and not sort of retain these purity tests where you have to show your fealty to the president or the former president uh, in order to sort of remain on the reservation. And uh, that is sort of a really, uh, I think, uh, something that we're seeing again here today. And but the question is, of course, the staying power. Um, there's often this, you know, again, this is not the first time that this has happened. And the question is going to be whether the people who are saying it's time to move on from Trump and if they can communicate effectively that, hey, having Trump on the ticket and making sure that we have candidates who are tied as closely to him as possible, uh, maybe this yields poor electoral results for us. Uh, if they can make that argument convincingly and convince enough people um, within the party, because that's really where this matters, this is, is, is this is an intra-party affair, um, then there might be actually some movement. But I would say that um, among the delegates and among the grassroots rank and file, as they exist now, as a body that's, you know, elected, people run for these positions and thousands of them meet and choose the next leadership of the party. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily uh, I don't have any sort of evidence or, or indication that there's a large movement among them to say, we're done. We're ready to move on from Donald Trump. Show us what's next. There's the inklings of that because of nascent political figures on the national scene like Ron DeSantis. Okay. But I really think that the proof is in the pudding in that regard. Well, and I wonder, is there this kind of a almost statistical phenomenon where he's strong enough within the Republican Party or grassroots to to get candidates to win primaries? But in the general, and especially with the, the abortion issue, which has brought so many people to the polls, it just didn't, you know, in the general population, there's just not enough support for those kind of can- I mean, look at John Gibbs in Grand Rapids. He he got beat pretty convincingly. Yeah, I mean, I think that this election, the coattails candidate was Gretchen Whitmer. I mean, I, you really it would be hard to look anywhere else in the governor's office than to to thank 
uh, for the, the fact that we are going to have democratic majorities in the legis in both legislative chambers. And I think that uh, the Republican Party memo, as controversial as it was, really sort of uh, you know lays blame at the feet of Tudor Dixon and and some of these top of the ticket candidates for candidate quality issues. And uh, I think that's a, a long time trend in legislative races, but uh, and trying to beat out those coattails and get ahead of them is really a challenge. I, I just think that, you know, coming into next year, we're going to see publicly the Republican Party need to do a lot of soul searching. Um, I mean, that same memo blamed Dixon for sort of perpetuating uh, what we would, you know, refer to as culture war issues. You you think about uh, trans children participating in sports um, or, or you know, obviously she had the, the very divisive stance on abortion for no uh, exceptions, even in cases of rape or incest. Um, but, you know, now she's jockeying to she says she wants to become the next uh, Michigan Republican Party chair. Uh, you have, you know, uh, Matt DiPerno saying he wants to become the next Michigan Republican Party chair. And these were individuals who were by and large, um, they, di they did buy into that that Trump brand. Um, and, and even still, you have more, you know, off to the fringes individuals who want to run for my GOP chair who who are going to continue or who, at least as of right now, seem like they're interested in, in, in continuing that that same sort of push on on culture war issues uh, that do not, by and large, play well with the wider population. Um, I mean, we saw in that memo that the uh, individual at the top now are saying, why didn't we market more on inflation? Why didn't we hit harder on uh, these more kitchen table issues? And, you know, whether that is going to be the route that the party takes next year, whether that is going to be that they continue to embrace Trumpism, um, you know, remains to be seen. But I think one of those decisions is, is going to have a pretty poor potential outcome for future Republican candidates, especially A, under these new maps, and B, should Trump, you know, decide to run again in, in 2024 for the presidency, um, there, there's going to be a lot of unanswered lingering questions that we're going to see, you know, move into 23 and 24. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a great point. And I also say, like, in terms of the, determining the future of the party, uh, I think that, you know, with the idea that Matt DiPerno has announced for chair and that uh, Tudor Dixon is considering it, these are sort of similar flavors of the direction that uh, the, the party wanted to take in 2022 that obviously, as you noted, proved electorally disastrous. What I'm really interested to see is for the, their, the contingent of people who say that it's time to move on from former President Trump, it's time to like look for new leaders and new icons in our party to sort of look towards uh, that alternative hasn't really emerged yet in terms of a, a leader. We're still months out from this convention. This is all speculation months ahead of time. But I'm going to be really interested to see, uh, you know, if that alternative emerges, who they are and what they look like, and more so what their platform is going to be. If you don't have somebody that's a Trump-like figure, like Ron DeSantis, for example, to sort of hold up as, hey, this is what we want instead, then mm -hmm. I think it might be difficult to say that we should just do away with this guy in lieu of undetermined something else. Yeah, we should be cautious. Uh, the guy does have a lot of money. When I say the guy, I mean, former President Trump, a lot of backers, a lot of money. He's got an organization that he didn't have, you know, five, six years ago. Um, and he's going to take the podium tonight uh, at Mar-a-Lago. So we'll we'll see what's up. <laughs> and uh, but uh, one of your colleagues, Ben Orner, wrote a headline. Uh, it was a great if some people want to go look at the story up because it's a it's a great digest of all the stuff that happened in the Michigan election, but it said, you know, blue wave, it was more like an earthquake. And the thing I want to ask you both, because the prop three, the abortion rights issue outpolled Whitmer in 82 of 83 Michigan counties. So 
I know we can't do the if game, like if the asteroid hadn't hit Earth, would there still be dinosaurs? It, it did. So this happened. It was concurrent. The abortion issue was here. But to your best, I mean, how much of this was because of the that that wave was a, a lot of people coming to the polls. We got record turnout. I mean, people for people who say democracy is dead or on life support, the last three elections have all set records for participation. But how can you extract the abortion issue out of that? I mean, not that you need to, but how much of that was a democratic uh, surge and how much of that was really just young people and others and people who are motivated to vote coming to vote? And that that was having a coattail effect. I, I honestly think it's a chicken and an egg situation. I think the abortion issue for the 2022 midterms was so integral to the level of turnout that we saw that this concept of like, oh, would turnout, it's honestly, I mean, Simon, correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like it's almost impossible to say how much turnout would have differed or how much all of this would have differed. I mean, we were talking about this the other day where, you know, again, talking about maps, talking about turnout, you know, what could 2024 look like and, and, you know, what will 2024 look like for young voters, for voters of color, if we don't have this highly motivating issue on the ballot for individuals to turn out. I mean, we could do a hand wringing until the cows come home. I, I really don't think you're able to separate that sort of issue from the level of turnout that we saw. It's just speculation. Uh, I completely agree. Um, and and I, I would say that there's sort of like a, a two step here that really uh, succeeded for Democrats. One is that the issue was on the ballot. Uh, Democrats for this entire campaign season have been casting selection in existential terms, talking about, you know, uh, abortion access, the right to vote. And, you, and then they say even democracy itself being on the ballot, uh, you know, sort of figuratively because of the fact that, uh, you know, some of these top candidates were election deniers who denied the, the realities of the 2020 election. Um, but in terms of abortion, I'd say the reason why this was so central to this election is because Democrats, particularly Gretchen Whitmer and her allies, wanted it to be uh, not. I mean, Proposal 3 uh, could have made abortion access a constitutional right and still they still could have elected Tudor Dixon. But uh, the Democratic Governors Association spent tens of millions of dollars on advertising, saying that, you know, Gretchen Whitmer is, is the governor who's looking to defend abortion access, while Tudor Dixon is the is the gubernatorial candidate who wants to ban it almost completely. And so uh, that messaging was almost impossible to avoid this election cycle. And more importantly still, and this is, I think, one of the, the most valid points from this uh, Republican Party memo is that, and something that I had reported on in the past as well, of course, is that Tudor Dixon had no money to respond mm -hmm. to this in the form of advertisements. Uh, this sort of defined her gubernatorial candidacy before she could define herself, much to the lament of Republicans across the board. And so as a result, uh, the Democratic ticket became part and parcel with abortion access. And then the inverse was true of Republicans as well. And so I think that the sort of the, the one saving grace that people uh, that on the Republican side are looking to right now is it's like is that when you move into 2024, what sort of issue, enormous wedge issue that motivates uh, uh, voters with that immediacy and, and urgency that, that Jordan was talking about is going to move them to the polls uh, next cycle. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be sort of an issue of this magnitude that can really bring people out. Um, and I think a lot of it's going to come down to who we see on the ballot in 2024 in terms of the presidency, which uh, I think everyone is uh, looking towards with a fair bit of apprehension. <laughs> Go ahead. I was going to say exactly that. I mean, if Trump ends up on the 2024 ballot, should he, you know, announce a presidential run? 
I mean, that's that may be nothing but a boon for Democrats come another two years because it is yet again another motivated. It is again another issue that they can point to to their constituency and say, hey, unless you elect us, unless you, you know, put potentially President Joe Biden back in office, you know, unless you come out in droves for us, here is your alternative. Um, but I mean, whether they're going to have anything after that should Trump not announce, which, you know, remains to be seen. Uh it, it's going to come up to Democrats to to make sure that they have that motivating issue for their voters at the polls, because by and large, it appears that that is what it is is going to take to turn out these these voters in these droves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I, take anything for granted, but the last I checked, Trump had never won an election in the popular vote in his political career. So I just lay that out there. I mean, in terms of as a strong candidate as a candidate who can get enough people now he did get 80 million votes but he lost so um we keep seeing these and and now that here in michigan that one of the proposals was to improve uh, access to voting to broaden access to voting and um you were going to say something simon and i'll let you but after you do uh, i do want to come back to some of the things we're seeing with younger voters too because you know, they're starting to see some trends emerge there. Now, maybe that, you know, abortion was the issue brought them out. But that being said, two years from now, we're going to have these people are already politically engaged in their voting. So anyways, Simon, you were going to say something. I was just going to say that if, you know, we see a 2024 where it is a rematch of, of Joe Biden and Donald Trump once again, uh, we look to the last two elections in Michigan. These are elections with record turnout, both for a presidential year and a midterm election year. And I don't necessarily... Uh, I shudder to think what sort of voter participation and turnout is going to be with a rematch of these candidates, just because a majority of Americans think that both of these folks should not run again for the presidency. And it may just happen anyway. And so uh, given the way uh, Americans view their politics these days and sort of the the, the cynical view that Americans have adopted of our political institutions, um, I am uh, really looking closely at, you know, sort of how people are going to view this upcoming election cycle with these two candidates if they are on the top of the ticket. Uh, I think that it's going to create a lot of challenges for both parties and not in the ways that we like to see. And I'm, uh, I am personally apprehensive as to what that's going to mean in terms of our political rhetoric, how they're going to try to get people to vote under those circumstances. Mm-hmm. Okay. I brought up the issue of younger voters. I mean, we did see the example on the campus of U of M where people waited six hours in line. Uh, like college students do, they waited till the last minute, <laughs> registered to vote and voted in the same line. But what did you see in Michigan and nationwide in terms of turnout that uh, the, the youth aspect of this and what that may portend? Well, this concept that younger voters aren't interested in voting is is just patently false. Like I remember being in high school and being chastised saying like kids your age, they don't care anything about politics. That That cannot be said for current voters, current Gen Z uh, voting age constituents. I mean, they showed out in droves. You can thank uh, college age students specifically for Alyssa Slotkin being reelected. Slotkin herself even came out and said, you know, college students who stuck in line, who turned out in droves, women who, you know, turned out in droves, they are the reason why I am standing here as your congressional elected representative yet yet again. Um, You know, we, we saw them help obviously pass abortion, uh, saying legal in the state of Michigan. Uh, if it's too much of a stretch to say that they're kind of trending towards more liberal aligned uh, ideologies in terms of voting, you know, they're, they're going to be a force that the Republican Party specifically at the national level 
because you've already seen pundits start to opine on this, they're going to need to be a force that the Republican Party has to somewhat get their hands around and appeal to, because if not, I mean, this is a huge swath of, of young, liberal-minded, traditionally individuals who are going to trend blue. And we saw that happen in Michigan. And, you know, they're going to be sort of this ace, I hate to say, in Democrat sleeves, only so long as they continue, they being Gen Z in this instance, to see results. Because you're also seeing at, at the national level, these youth-aligned organizations saying like, hey, the old way of, you know, we're going to turn out and vote, we're going to vote for these candidates, and then everything is going to stay status quo. That's not going to fly anymore. And, and I think Democrats also need to realize that, too, is it's like, if you want to get this genie out of the bottle of youth voter engagement, then you better be prepared to, to put up with it, put up in terms of, you know, show actual results, because otherwise, you know, they're also a very flaky voting block. Mm -hmm. If they don't see results, they're not going to turn up. Right. Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything Jordan's saying. I think that that's right on the money. And I want to I want to like sort of to place an emphasis on her final point about, you know, sort of that. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not yet convinced about the staying power of, of uh, college age liberal and progressive voters, specifically because the issues that they're most motivated by are some of the most intractable and systemic problems uh, that have vexed policymakers for decades now. Things like climate change, economic inequality, racial equity. Uh, these are things that have no easy solutions to them and require bold policy action to move forward, at least, you know, according to some of these uh, progressive elected leaders. And so, as Jordan said, uh, you know, if they don't necessarily see results in some of these categories, I think it might be difficult to motivate them to vote into the future. And I really I'm so glad I get to throw this word in here. But it's because I think, you know, our government is very is moving and trending towards a gerontocracy. We have a lot of old, old people in office. And that, I think, is frustrating to a lot of younger voters, especially when they see these issues like climate change, where the full effects are not going to be found in the lives of our elected officials, but rather in the lives of them and their children who will be really bearing the brunt of sort of some of these, you know, big ecological issues moving forward. Um, they want to be able to see action and that their, you know, uh, mobilization and activation is actually for something. And so they were really able to see that in this election. I think the beauty of those ballot proposals that they're direct referendum, that they could say, here are these fundamental issues on the ballot that we need you to vote in favor of because you passing those proposals will, uh, you know, sort of render that in stone now in the state constitution. Uh, is a big motivating factor. And so I'm going to I'm really curious to see whether uh, they can activate this voting uh, demographics again with a message or policy promises or maybe even another ballot proposal that uh, is motivating for those individuals. Those ballot proposals seem to be a little bit of magic. You get that, if you said, make it tangible uh, rather than existential. Um, OK, we got a couple minutes left here on Behind the Headlines and so much I still want to talk about, but I'll just leave it here. We got lame duck coming up. Uh, we now have a, a party that's in, in control for the completely for the first time uh, that they have been in 40 years. What are you both each looking at next? Uh, we got two years. Well, actually, we don't have two years before the presidential election because it starts. It's already started uh, the process. But what do you what are the key things that uh, you're interested in looking into next? Well, I mean, out of the legislature, we've already started to see some headlines. Uh, the Capital News Organization Gong were reported earlier today to not expect anything large out of lame duck policy wise, which I suppose isn't that big of a shocker. I mean, if you're a part of the Democratic Party, you are waiting until you have full control in so that you can do. I won't want to say whatever you want, because obviously 
that is not going to be a, a winning solution to just hit the ground running and say, you know, all you middle of the road voters who who turned out for us, uh, we're going to go just as fully liberal as possible. You won't see that in, in 2023. Um, what you will likely see is um, Democratic majorities setting the conversation tone on tax cuts. I know that that is something we have an outstanding, something like $6 billion of uh, federal funding that is just sitting in state coffers right now. Um, you will likely see some movement on that, um, especially at the point where uh, Republicans can't uh, like I said, set the tone on that conversation. I would be shocked if you didn't see something to the effect of uh, um, like Pride Month resolute, like lower issues. I don't want to say lower, but I mean, the the less controversial issues that remained controversial while Republicans were in power. I mean, I remember back to when we had this long drawn out conversation about whether to pass a resolution recognizing Pride Month because the current Senate Majority Leader, Mike Shirky, said that we shouldn't do that because people might have differences in opinions and, and things like that. So I think you're going to see some smaller issues um, and then, you know, a couple really big ones, tax cuts being among them, uh, changes to the earned income tax credit. Um, and then, you know, we're entering into campaign season. So anything else being hugely uh, monumental in terms of a policy shift on the on the state level, I think you're going to see that start to cool down uh, entering into into 2024. Yeah, Jordan, you saying we're entering into campaign season just triggered my anxiety. All right. We've had like less than a week. We could just calm, you know, know. let's give it a few months. Don't encourage these folks. Um, uh. <laughs> but th that said, that said, uh, I, I will say that um, you know, we had a, a candidate at the top of the ticket in Gretchen Whitmer running that saying that she's focusing on the fundamentals, but now she's staring down Democratic majorities in both chambers of the legislature. And when you're playing minority politics, it's really easy to present a united front, right? Um, but these uh, Democratic legislators have a wish list that goes far beyond the fundamentals. And these are things that, you know, they on in their policy agenda may consider fundamental to themselves and their constituents and interest groups. But uh, these are not things that necessarily were a statewide campaign message. Well, I'm sorry that we've run out of time, but it's invigorating. And like I said, it's it's not like the story's over. It's just getting going. I want to thank Simon Schuster and German, uh, Jordan Hermony for joining this morning. Uh, hopefully you've got your rest now uh, back after a, a very, very busy uh, election season. And thanks for the great work you've done on behalf of MLive's readers. And for that, to wrap on Behind the Headlines, and we'll join you again next week. Thank you. And there they go. Big thanks to Simon and Jordan for joining us. And as always, if you like what John and I are doing, like, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Till next week, he is John Heiner. I am Eric Halkren. And this is Behind the Headlines.